Open your Bible to Matthew chapter three, if you have a Bible near you, or you can follow along on the slides if you don't have a Bible with you. You can also get a phone app. I was just delighted, so I I tend to use the ESV Bible app, and there's a new voiceover for it, uh, a gal named Kristen Getty, who has a, 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 she's from Northern Ireland, so I guess a Northern Irish dialect of English. It's kind of delightful to listen to the Bible in that. Anyhow, uh, if you want a good Bible app, uh, there are plenty to find. Matthew chapter three, we're learning why does Jesus matter today? We've been looking at that question and we'll continue with that question for a while because as you'll notice, there's quite a bit of Matthew left. So uh, we'll be learning from him for a while. Today we see he brings heaven to us. Matthew's going to echo this refrain, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And here we see the words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It has come near. You could even render it, it has arrived. Jesus brings heaven to us. But if you actually think about heaven, and maybe if you pull away some of the cultural uh, ways of thinking about heaven, some of the sanitized precious moments, if you like precious moments, that's okay. But just know that actual angels that we see in the scriptures uh, are the kind of thing that you would drop on your face in fear in front of. And they are covering their faces in fear of the holy glory of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, the angels say. Heaven is a place where the Lord is. And the Lord is so unlike us. Perfect wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Glory like we couldn't imagine. There is no darkness. There is no sin in him. And we, (laughs) we're a bit different. We're not infinite in anything. But we've all messed up. We've all sinned. So how could we be safe with God? How could this be good news for heaven to come to us? And one of the strategies that we might have to sort of try to be safe uh, is to join the right group, to be a part of the right group, to, to have the right jersey, the right chants, the right slogans, so that God will approve us, so that we can be the right ones. Heaven would be on our side. I think of when I was in college, I was a Mizzou Tiger, and so I was... Uh, I was really thankful to go there. I got a good education. And I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. Now it's called Crew, Crew at Mizzou. And uh, we, I was sitting with some campus ministry leaders. We were watching a game. It was a big year for Mizzou. Mizzou was in the running to win their conference. They were still in the Big 12 at the time. But then the Oklahoma State Cowboys come up, and they just give us a shellacking. It was terrible. It was an awful game. Like, every quarter got worse. And we're just, you know, shouting and cheering for Mizzou, and that cheering started to turn to shouting at the other team. And there was just this moment where something clicked in me, where I'm just like, what is happening? Because I'm I'm sitting next to my friend Davo, he goes by, and and we're shouting things, and I start to hear the sort of things we're shouting, like, your mother is a, you know, like, and I'm a campus ministry leader, you know? And I'm like, what is happening? There's something that happens when we're in a big group, when we're convinced and excited and hopeful, expectant, we're wearing the jersey, 
And together we can accomplish amazing things and there can be great goods and noble causes pursued, but there can also be a point where it turns, right? Where group identity can become something that's kind of dangerous, kind of scary, that harms people. And when we add religion into the mix, it can become harming in the name of God. And it was the same way in the first century in Judea. They had their religious divisions, their groups, and they were the right ones. The Pharisees and Sadducees, you see them introduced in this passage. It's kind of shocking that they were together because uh, the, the limited accounts that we have of them as groups would indicate they wouldn't get along very well. But perhaps in the presence of a common threat, you could imagine uh, there's a religious leader who's drawing people away from our religious gatherings, and so they're concerned perhaps about losing their positions with their people. And so they go out together to see this baptism of John the baptizer, the one who baptizes. Uh, we, we often say John the Baptist, but it's helpful to remember that John wasn't a Baptist and Jesus wasn't a Presbyterian. So uh, the, it can just be clarifying. He, he washed people in expectation to get ready because heaven was coming. And all of these hopes that the people had had, hopes that were bound up in the coming of one like Elijah. At the very end of the Older Testament, we see Malachi. And at the very end there, in Malachi 4, you see the hope of Elijah coming. And who's going to come right after Elijah comes and prepares the people? It would be God. And so the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. We're expecting God to come, his kingdom to come, to set things right. And, and for the record, Lord, sometimes we forget this. In the uh, Older Testament, when you see Lord printed in all caps, it's a way our English Bibles indicate that that's the divine name Yahweh. And our Jewish neighbors protected the divine name. They honored it as holy, and they didn't ever want to say it in a wrong spirit. They didn't want to bring dishonor to God's name, so they would read Yahweh, but say Adonai, Lord. And uh, that tradition carried on in the Greek Old Testament, which was then used by most of our New Testament authors. And, and so, Lord, Lord, Yahweh, God with us. And so... If you were in this, in this milieu, if you were a first century Jewish person, you hear that God is coming, and you wanna know how to get on God's side, it would be surprising to you, shocking actually, to hear that you should turn to Jesus. That's what John says. Look at, look at chapter three, verse two. When John came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent, repent, turn. Uh, if you take the word and just look at the word, it looks like change your mind. And sometimes in the New Testament, the notion of changing your mind is at play in repentance, like uh, by the renewing of your mind in Romans chapter 12. But what's primarily in play in the first century as a Jewish person who's a reader of the Hebrew scriptures, it would be the idea of to turn. The Hebrew notion of repentance was to turn or return. It's like coming home to God's ways and to God himself. 
Well, where do you turn to in this passage? Who is the one who comes, who John prepares the way for? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so, um, I'm just going to take a quick moment and pray, and then we'll, we'll continue turning to Jesus and uh, looking to him. Father, please bless us as we look to your word now. Uh, we ask that you would make it clear, make it plain to us. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So, as we turn to Jesus for forgiveness, that's the first place we turn, uh, we see how we do that. If you look uh, again, John was uh, coming in the midst of a people, telling them to repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And remember that heaven is not like us. Heaven is where God resides. It is all holiness and perfection. We may not feel safe in that place. John speaks of a coming wrath for the Pharisees and Sadducees when they come to his baptism. Because God is not pleased with the way that people break love over their knee and turn away from him. He's particularly displeased, we find from Jesus later on, when religious people will harm people in his name and keep them from knowing himself. And so John has some some words with the Pharisees and Sadducees. But when we think of prophets and when we think of judgment, when we think of the kingdom of heaven or of heaven generally today, Many of our neighbors, or some of us, would even roll our eyes. We think uh, we might have the phrase in our heads, uh, you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. Have you ever heard that saying? You're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. You can hear the sentiment behind that. Maybe a neighbor experiences Christianity as this sort of uh, wish fulfillment. That's the way some people talk about Christianity and religion generally. We just wish people well. We wish the world well, but we don't actually do anything to change the world. Maybe you felt that yourself before. Uh, This idea of you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good, about 50 years it was put into lyrics. Uh, John Lennon wrote the song, Imagine. Maybe you remember that song. I think the Pentatonics did a version of it recently. And so it's been played on Alexa in my house. And uh, imagine, goes like this. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. And here's, I think, what Lennon was really going for. Imagine all the people living for today. He goes on, imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Seems like Lenin probably had experienced religion as something that brought harm, not as peace. If you lived in the first century in Judea, you might have experienced some of that. You might have known some of that. He goes on saying, imagine all the people sharing all the world. Imagine there's no heaven. The thing I would want to say to John Lennon, if if I had a chance to sit down with him or a neighbor who uh, sort of inhabits his worldview, is maybe skeptical of someone opening up the Bible and talking about heaven coming to be with us. I might just ask him, Uh, Well, first of all, I would say it's a noble vision that he's pursuing, all people coming together as one in peace together. What a noble thing. Shouldn't we want that? I think we do. But the thing that I would say is, is has the pursuit of that kind of peace in the absence of heaven, has it worked? 
Has it worked? Where have we gotten? There have been some utopian visions. Karl Marx had communism. If you think about it, it sounds great. Everybody getting along, everybody sharing everything. But we've never gotten past violence and revolution and dictatorship. And I don't know what replacement we've come up with. I don't see our world becoming more one as we become more secular. But what if, what if there's something in Jesus? C.S. Lewis uh, says something different about being heavenly minded in mere Christianity. He said, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. And if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. He goes on, uh, it's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. It seems perhaps there's a way of looking to heaven, looking to Jesus that does something more than mere wish fulfillment, that brings about incredible good on earth, the first hospitals, the end of slave trade in England by the English evangelicals. Lewis mentions several other examples. And we see actually in this passage that desire that John Lennon had for all to come together is there's a seed of it already here. Who comes out to be baptized? It says in verse five, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan. Now, even in first century Judea, believe it or not, even like 21st century Loveland, there are people in that area who did not see everything in the same way, who did not get along, who would not naturally choose to spend time with some of the other people who were coming to the river. Neighbors who might feel uncomfortable together, but all of them together welcomed to do what? To find forgiveness. Forgiveness. They went to the water and they were baptized by John, confessing their sins, verse six. Confessing their sins, that they were wrong, that they had broken God's ways and turned away from God, all of them, all of their sides were wrong. There's a moment in Joshua, that's a historical book in the Older Testament, it's the sixth book you'll find in your Bible. It's a book that neighbors have a lot of questions about. I have questions about it too, I'm learning. Uh, but there's a, a moment in Joshua chapter five, verses 13 to 15, when we see uh, this notion of taking sides challenged by the Lord When Joshua was was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Who is this? We find out it is the commander of the Lord's armies. Joshua says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And what does he say? No. But I am the commander of the Lord's armies. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him. Many of us 
who read the Bible have concluded that this might, in fact, be the Lord appearing if Joshua indeed fell and, and worshiped him. And he wasn't rebuked for worshiping him. Nonetheless, the invitation at the River Jordan is not to take earthly sides, but to side with the Lord. To side with the Lord. That's the invitation at baptism. But how could we even be safe then on the Lord's side? How could there be a safe space for sinners? Well, we find that actually later in the passage. Down uh, in verse 13, Jesus is the one who comes. He is the one that John was preparing the way for. This man from Nazareth, from Galilee, comes to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John was going to prevent him because who was coming to be baptized? All these people who were confessing sins. Jesus, you don't need that. I need your baptism. I need your Holy Spirit baptism. I've just got water. But Jesus says, no, this is fitting, fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Remember last time we said Jesus is coming to fulfill his people's story. All of their brokenness, all of the ways they've turned against God, all of their sorrows and their hopes, Jesus is coming to fulfill it all and cover it with his righteousness. And Jesus is doing so right here. He is coming before them into the water to walk the path that they're called to walk perfectly. And he calls people after him. He also will say, repent, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. So what do we do? How do we turn to Jesus for forgiveness? The first step I just invite you is to baptism, to baptism, this this washing with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we're, we're not given any instruction about which view of baptism to take in this passage, so I'm not going to talk about that. But rather, what I'm going to talk about is what this pas- passage does show, is that baptism is an identification with God and his kingdom. It means we're, we're saying the Lord, we're, we're leaving all of our sides, all of our jerseys, all of our slogans, and we're saying, Jesus, I'll follow you. You're the one that John was coming to prepare us for. And so we turn to you and we confess that we actually need what you came to do. We need forgiveness. We have sinned. We've done wrong against one another and against God. That's what we do. And it may be as simple as uh, just coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, please forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, If you haven't been baptized before, I would just invite you uh, to consider what that would look like with us. Come talk to me as a pastor. You could find one of our elders. Keith, who was singing earlier, is one of our elders. Uh, You could just come and talk to us. We'd love to share with you about a path forward with Jesus as we look to him confessing our sins, identifying with him and his kingdom. Turn to Jesus for forgiveness. But the the funny thing that's going to happen when you do that is you're going to look around in the water, you're going to look around at these people and realize that you've not only turned to Jesus for forgiveness, but you've also turned to him for a family. Because now you're with a bunch of people looking to Jesus. And they're people from the surrounding region of Jordan and from all Judea and Jerusalem. And there are all these different people that you wouldn't invite into your house, right? People that disagree with you, you know, 
There's Essenes over here who have weird cultic practices and beliefs, and there's Pharisees who are so conservative, and there's these Sadducees that have abandoned belief in, in miracles and resurrection, and they just believe in the ethical teachings of Moses, you know? And they all think they're right. But they've left behind those things to come and look to Jesus. Group belonging, wearing the same jersey, it's this powerful thing. And it's good. It's not good for a man to be alone, the scriptures say. It's not good for human beings to be alone. It's good to be together. It's good to find a group identity. But in Jesus, we find a different way. We find a different way. Jesus' family isn't like the groups of his day. I'd suggest they're not like the groups of ours either. When when the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees came to John's baptism, he says to them, you brood of vipers. And I promise none of the folks dressed in orange will say that to you today. Uh, But what was it about them? What was it about the Pharisees and Sadducees that would lead John to say something like this? Those are harsh words. It's because they were devouring people who wanted to know God, who wanted forgiveness, who wanted to be a part of God's people and his purpose in this world. And they were putting up barriers and saying, no, you have to be like us first. You have to be in our group first. And on and on. And John says, no. And there were two particular critiques that you can hear in his words to them. He says first to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You see, in their group identities, they had abandoned repentance, turning to God as their primary way of being. They were turning inward to their group, to their group identity. And it was in that identity that they found a sense of entitlement. Because we are Sadducees, because we are Pharisees, we are entitled to God's love. We're entitled to God's protection and blessing. And the other people aren't. We are children of Abraham after all. You you can't say anything to me, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a part of the right group. I practice Torah in the correct way according to the right rabbi, right? And we don't do anything like that today. Or do we? What group identities do we hold perhaps too tightly? You see, Christ didn't come simply, simply to to change our outward appearance, to make us look good by having the right jersey and identifying with this, this great group. He came to change us from the inside out, the very mess that we are. He was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and bring about a heart level change. It's a promise of a new kind of family, a new covenant, that's the Bible word. Uh, you, could, you could use the word family there, a new kind of family, a new relationship where the Lord would put his spirit in us, cause us to live truly and to walk in his ways. And all Jerusalem, all Judea, all the surrounding region of Jordan comes to receive this. And eventually, all nations 
right? Matthew 28, 19. And so this family is becoming really interesting (laughs) that Jesus is coming to build and to redeem. Whenever I came to visit, uh, when you all asked me a lot of questions, uh, a lot of interesting questions, and one question that was asked multiple times in multiple ways is how do we live in the midst of all these different perspectives in this complicated day and age when there's all these uh, attacks, sometimes truly attacks, sometimes we just experience them as attacks as, uh, against Christianity. This time when it's increasingly uncomfortable to be Christian and identify with Jesus. How do we live in this moment? What, what will you do for us, pastor? What will you tell us to do? And I said this, repent. We need to repent. There's no special strategy. There's no fancy apologetic argument that we can make that will make Jesus look beautiful to a culture that for a long time has felt like we were so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. But what if we actually turn to Jesus? What if we found him beautiful again? And what if we walked in his ways together across all the lines that naturally divide us? What would that look like to our neighbors? So today, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were called to repent by John the baptizer, today I'm calling you to repent even of your group idolatries. Being a Pharisee is not going to make you safe with God when he he comes. Being a Republican will not make you safe with God when he comes. Being a Democrat will not make you safe with God when he comes. Being a Broncos fan will not make you safe. Being a Chiefs fan? (laughs) No, it won't either. We know that we have that level of idolatry in us when we elevate our membership in that group so that we can't listen to anyone outside that group, even those who are Christians. We would rather be in fellowship with fellow, fill in the blanks, than fellow Christians. That's a symptom. Repent, just turn to Jesus together. We know that we are guilty of that kind of idolatry when we would defend our group platform against scripture. But scripture says this. Well, scripture over here says this, and we turn scripture against scripture and Jesus against Jesus, right? Because our platform and all of it has to be right. Our group has to be right. We're the right ones after all. We've sided with righteousness and with heaven. God is on our side. But the thing is, Jesus, who is all love and justice and reaching out to the nations, someone who is deeply attractive to a world that longs for this kind of welcome, is 
also the Jesus of truth and righteousness, of biblical fidelity. And he is the one Jesus. And he's perfect character, the fullness of God in flesh. And he leaves all of us feeling uncomfortable. And he doesn't fully endorse any of our lists or rules. He's given us enough to worry about in the Bible. You know, we've elevated our membership in a group when we fear losing the approval of the group so that we won't ever critique it. We can't say with some basic common sense, biblical sense, Jesus sense, just looking to Jesus, that this part doesn't seem right because if we say that, we might be cast out of the group. We won't be true members of that group, right? The thing that I want you to look to today to leave behind those idolatries, to hold those group identities a little looser is to look to the voice of the Father. What does Jesus hear? Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Did you know that when you go in the waters, when you confess, when you receive that forgiveness, you hear those same words over you. You may not hear it any other time in your life. You certainly won't hear it if you don't measure up to your group standards. But the very standard to be a part of this group is that you can't measure up. And Jesus measures up for you. And right there, you get to hear, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, I love you. And when the group abandons you and points at you, you can hear it again, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. You have all you need. And you're surrounded by this awkward family that's receiving the same forgiveness and love and welcome. And so that leads me to my final thought as we hold our group identities a little looser because we turn to Jesus for family. We have to embrace the awkwardness. Christina uh, in college was a wonderful, wonderful host. She still is. And her and her sister would have people over to their apartment. And something that tended to be a theme whenever I would hear about how did it go was it was so awkward. It was awkward. You know, because they would just welcome everyone, all the gals from, from campus ministry. And a lot of times... These are very different people with different personalities. Or Christina's a relatively quiet person when you first get to know her. And they would be a really quiet person. When you get two quiet people in a room, what is it like? You know? <laughs> so it could be awkward, right? But it could, it could be worse because you may come to church and you may be sitting next to a Republican. You may be sitting next to a Democrat, a quiet person, a loud person, right? A Broncos fan, a Chiefs fan. No Chiefs fans, Sharon says, I gotta go. (laughs) We're an awkward mess where heaven is at work. And there's something that Satan does. Uh, If you're a neighbor and you uh, might have questions about Satan, come talk to me. If you risk it, I'd love to get coffee, but C.S. Lewis writes in, in the screw tape letters from the perspective of a demon in service of the devil, 
and he's trying to tempt a person and keep them from, from walking with Jesus. And in, in this letter, the demon writes, he says, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. When he goes inside and he's speaking of a man going into church, he's probably envisioning a a, a big, beautiful stone uh, church in England. Um, He's an Anglican. When he goes inside, he says, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing religious lyrics, mostly bad, and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. Have you felt that at church? Welcome to church. The thing is, that's you too. And we're all here, the oily-faced neighbor. We're all here, a perspective that's disagreed with about someone else. You know, the person sitting next to you may have a different perspective on baptism or, or may have no perspective on baptism at all, right? And here we are together, turning to Jesus. And it's awkward. So the good news is this is Jesus' plan, that there would be a people of every nation, tribe, and tongue coming together and proclaiming that our Lord is worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And so as we embrace that awkwardness, I invite you to a small step today. And uh, if, if, if you all know each other, as I'm still getting to know you, uh, then, then I'm gonna have a caveat for this. But the, the small step is find the one person you don't know today and say hello. The one person you don't know, closest person perhaps that's near you that you don't know, say hello. Now, if everybody swarms you, forgive me. I'll, you know, you can blame me later. But say hello, and perhaps even invite them to lunch if you have the means. Hear their story. Get to know them. Pray for them, perhaps. If you're an other-than-Christian person and you've taken a risk to be with us, you can do this, too. You can say hello to us. Welcome us, too. It feels good both ways. But it's also helping us to become a family. And you know what Jesus said about his disciples and to his disciples? He said, they'll know you're my disciples by what? By your love. What if our neighbors saw that? That we weren't an affinity club that came together because we agreed that it's fun to watch the Broncos on a Sunday afternoon or we're an affinity club that agrees politically, or we're an affinity club that agrees about baptism, or we're an affinity club that agrees, you know, whatever it is, your thing, right? But what if they came here and experienced the love of Jesus, even when it's awkward? That's my hope for us. 
So turn to Jesus, faith, church, and friends. Turn to him. You'll find forgiveness there. You'll find a family, and you'll find heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for heaven with us. We look to him now. We continue to praise him and ask that you would uh, just help us to see who he is completely and truly. Uh, We ask that in his name. Amen.